Well, good morning, NBC. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. So excited to start our new sermon series this Christmas. Is Christmas unbelievable? We're basing our series off this little tiny book by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. She's got her PhD from Cambridge University, and she wrote this little treatise uh, not that long ago, and it is uh, just a fantastic tool. I encourage you to pick one up for yourself, but also uh, one that you can give away too, as it's a really wonderful uh, attribution of some of the historicity of Christmas and why we can trust the world's famous story. The subtitle is Four Questions everyone should ask about the world's famous, most famous story. It's going to be a wonderful series. Uh, perhaps you, like me, are going to have some interactions with some friends and family members uh, that uh, maybe are a little bit skeptical about Christmas or maybe even a little antagonistic about the Christian faith. Uh, that little book will be helpful uh, in terms of preparing you to be able to answer some questions, but also uh, in terms of uh, preparing you to share that uh, with others as well. So, Over the next four weeks, here's kind of what we're going to cover. Here's the layout. Uh, Week one today, we're going to talk about was Jesus even a real person, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Week two, we're going to talk about weren't the Gospels made up later? Uh, That question is interesting. Like, How do we know that the words that we read about Jesus in our four Gospels can be trusted as true eyewitness testimony? Is it is it something we can rely on, or is it like the game of telephone where one person told the next person and, and on down the line where it got kind of garbled and lost? So how, how can we trust those documents? Week three is about how can you believe in a virgin birth? I mean, here we are, it's the year 2022, and sometimes I hear people say, you know, Pastor Dave, I think I can believe in an all-powerful, transcendent God, but how can we in our modern scientific age believe in something like a virgin birth. That just seems totally crazy. And I know how that feels logical and sounds logical, but if you'll think about that, that's actually quite illogical. In other words, if you believe in a transcendent God who made the whole universe, it is not too difficult for that God to create one human being in a unique way. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin says in her book, it's kind of like you walk up to Simone Biles, the most talented gymnast in all of the world, and you say, I know you're an Olympic medalist, but I don't think you could do a somersault. Well, you know, one simple miracle like a virgin birth is not too difficult for an all-powerful, sovereign creator God who made everything else, right? Uh, Week four, we're going to talk about why Christmas matters. That'll be the subject of our Christmas candlelight services this year. That's a great night to invite a friend, to invite a family member, uh, to invite that skeptical person in your life then or throughout the month of December. Uh, Bring your Uncle Joe who has questions. Bring your college student or young adult at home that has questions. We encourage you to make this a safe place to answer uh, questions. Or maybe you're here today and that's you. You're skeptical and we want you to know that you're welcome here. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to, to attend NBC worship services. Uh, maybe you've been hurt by the church. Uh, maybe you've stayed away for a time. Uh, maybe you've been hit hard by some kind of suffering in life and it's caused you to have a lot of doubts about the faith. Or maybe you're just not sure what you believe uh, and you think you're kind of deconstructing your faith. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism out there today. You are not alone. And in some of it, let's be honest, is well-founded. The church has had so many abuses and scandals over the last uh, few years. Leaders abusing their power, sex scandals and moral failures, uh, failing to listen to victims, to be a voice for the voiceless. It's really easy to get cynical. This is especially true uh, for millennials and those in Gen Z. 
And so uh, this generation, I've noticed as a pastor, are not just asking the question, is Christmas believable? They're, they're asking a second question. They're asking, is Christmas even a good thing? Is Christianity even good? Do the teachings of Jesus hold back social justice or advance human progress? Or is Christianity toxic, leading to bigotry and backwards thinking? Uh, We really want you to feel like this is a place where you can ask and answer those questions this month. Christianity is not just a religion based on myths and feelings, and you don't have to check your head at the door to have faith in Jesus Christ. Actually, I think Christianity can stand up to the strongest scrutiny out there. And so this is going to be a month-long series on what we call apologetics. That's a big word. Uh, The word does not mean we apologize for being Christians. That's not what that word means. Uh, The word actually comes from the Greek term apologia, which means an intellectual defense of the reasonable truth of Christian belief and doctrines. Key words, intellectual and reasonable. Our generation right now is full of skepticism about institutions like the church. And so we want to investigate the trustworthiness of the claims of Christmas But we also want to examine Christianity's actual record on issues like human rights and freedom, science and medicine and racial equality. And we want to measure if the people who actually believed in Christmas uh, made the world a better place or a worse place based on facts, not feelings or personal opinions. Recently, I came across a book uh, called Jesus Skeptic by an award-winning investigative journalist named John Dickerson. He's written for the New York Times, USA Today. Back in 2014, uh, he actually won the Livingston Award for Young Journalists given, to, given by NBC and ABC News. And he's got this interesting quote in this book. He said, quote, I believe that my generation of Americans, millennials, both in the 80s and 90s, has largely been denied the truth about Christianity's influence and record on social justice. We're being told about the negative moments only in human history and the positive moments from other world belief systems. But, he says, we have not been exposed to the whole truth of the Christian record so that we can decide for ourselves whether Jesus' teachings and movement would be helpful to our personal lives and to the positive society we want to build. So those are the kind of questions we want to address in this series, and we're going to talk about many of those Uh, today, but we'll start with this sort of foundational question, right? Was Jesus even a real person? And so to get at that, let me just divide up the message into three parts. First, I want to look at the external evidence for Jesus, evidence outside the Bible. Then number two, we want to look at the internal evidence for Jesus, evidence inside the Bible. And then third, I want to kind of back away and look at the global evidence for Jesus, evidence of his impact on the world. And so that's where we're headed for this morning. That's a tall order, so would you pray with me as we dive into the message today? Heavenly Father, we just pray before you right now, asking for your uh, spirit to illuminate our minds, our our ears, open up our hearts, most of all, uh, to hear from you, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room. Perhaps some of them, my friends here, have deep and abiding questions today about this very significant uh, subject. And so I pray, God, that you would speak Lord, we pray that you'd especially be with our preacher. He needs your help the most. And bless our time in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. So today there's about 7 billion people. We're closing in on 8 billion people that live on the planet. And if you take a look at this map right here, you'll notice that 2.3 billion people believe the claims of Jesus to be true. So that means right now about a third of the people who live on our planet sincerely believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again from the dead. 
They also believe Jesus is God and will return again for the second time, the second advent, to set up a kingdom of peace and prosperity. This makes Christianity the largest social movement in all of human history. And so I just want you to think about the stakes here as you look at that map on the screen. Either this Christmas story is amongst the greatest scams ever perpetrated on humanity, or this is indeed one of the greatest news stories that's ever been told in the history of humankind. So how can we know? That's question number one. Was Jesus a real person? Did he exist? What I've noticed is that this is often a question people raise when they really don't want to consider any evidence about Jesus. It's kind of like hand-waving, you know, like who knows if Jesus even existed. And so what I would say to that is that even people like Bart Ehrman, uh, a New Testament scholar and skeptic, wrote a book a few years ago called Did Jesus Exist? Uh, The Historical Argument for the Jesus of Nazareth, where he basically says that the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth is basically acknowledged by every scholar across the world, whether they're hardcore atheists or evangelical Christians. Because when you look at the evidence, even the evidence outside of the Bible, there's about 15 other ancient writers who make mention, and sometimes in great detail, the person of Jesus and his early followers that exists during that time period. Rebecca McLaughlin cites several of them in her book. Let me show you one. First is a revered ancient Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus. We call him Flava Joe. Flava Joe. Just kidding. Josephus was not a Christian, but he lived during the same era as Jesus in the first century. Here's one page out of his historical writing. He says this. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning who the prophets have recounted wonders." So Josephus is just one out of about 15 ancient writers outside of the Bible, outside of Christianity, who writes about Jesus as an actual historical figure during this time period. In fact, we could corroborate objective evidence for Jesus' existence and the basic facts of his life using only sources outside of the Bible. We would pretty much know that Jesus was some kind of itinerant teacher. We would know that he spoke in parables. We would know that he developed a following. We would know that he performed at least what many people claim to be miracles. We would know he lived in poverty, died in agony, and we would know after which many of his followers claimed that they had seen him risen from the dead and worshiped him as God and took this message around the globe, even if it meant great persecution for them. We would know all of that, even if we didn't have the Bible at all. So what I'm trying to say here is that there's a lot of objective evidence of Jesus' existence, far more, actually, than any other historical figure. If you think about Plato or Aristotle or Socrates, we don't have near as much evidence for their existence, yet no one questions their existence. Have you noticed that? My point is the widespread global impact of Christianity started with a historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. This is an indisputable fact, even among secular historians. 
The second source Rebecca mentions in her book is Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian from the first century who described how Jesus' followers, called Christians, were spreading rapidly from Judea to Rome, and he recorded this. He says this. Let me, let me show you on the screen. He says, Nero fastened guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. He goes on to say, and I'll just read this part, Christus, which was an ancient way of saying Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that's crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, the belief that Jesus was God, thus checked for a moment, but again broke out, not only in Judea, but even in Rome, where all things horrible and shameful in the world collect and become fashionable. That's Tacitus. So what I've just read to you is what we call a primary source material. Two of them, actually, Josephus and Tacitus, historical writers outside of Christianity, confirming the existence of Jesus and also confirming that he had a growing following. McLaughlin cites a third source in her book, Pliny the Younger. He was a Roman governor in Turkey living in 109 AD. And he wrote a letter to the emperor asking for advice on how to best persecute these Christ followers. He basically said there's this growing group of Christians. They're refusing to bow down and say Caesar is Lord. Uh, What should we do about them? And he said this group is really growing fast. He said it's not just growing amongst the foolish and naive part of the population, uh, women, slaves, children. That's his words, not mine. But he said it's also growing in uh, the upper class of our society too, people of all ages, all working class, wealthy, poor, all ranks, all different sexes. This group is just exploding. How do we get this group under control? So here's Pliny the Younger writing in the early 100s about how Christianity is growing rapidly like a mustard seed. How did that happen? What is the explanation for the growing movement that became this global uh, religion? The life of Jesus has influenced dozens and then hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands and then millions. And now billions of people are motivated towards deep faith and radical action in the name of Jesus Christ. How do we explain that? Historian H.G. Wells, again, not a Christian, said it this way. He said, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess, as, as a historian, this penniless preacher from Nazareth is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. That's amazing. Now, that's a lot of evidence outside of the Bible. But personally, I don't really think it's fair that we can only look at evidence outside of the Bible. Like what other historical figure do we look into and we say we can't look at anything by his friends or his followers or his cabinet. We can only look at stuff that, that doesn't make any sense at all. So we also should be able to look into the internal evidence for Jesus too, people who actually knew him, saw him, and followed him, right? So that leads us to movement too, the internal evidence for Jesus, stuff inside the Bible. And here in this section, I'll take it in two parts. Uh, Section A is the Old Testament evidence, and then section B is the New Testament evidence. So we'll start with the Old Testament evidence. And the main issue here is that the coming of the Messiah uh, was a large theme, and the coming of Jesus was a large fulfillment of Old Testament Jewish prophecy. Just think about that. What other major religious leader's birth was predicted in advance? Moses? Mohammed? Joseph Smith? No, no, no. Friends, there are at least 10 very specific prophecies in the Jewish scriptures concerning the birth of Jesus that were fulfilled with exact precision. Here's a few on the screen. 
The prophet said that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. The prophet said that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. The prophet said that he would be born of a virgin. The prophet said that the Messiah would be a son of David. Remember that from our previous series? The prophet said in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would also suffer. If you read that chapter, see if you're not taken aback by the specificity there. The prophet said that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. The prophet said that he would be silent before those who accused him. The prophet said that he would be sold away for exactly 30 pieces of silver. The prophet said that when he was dying, they would be gambling for his clothes. The prophet said that none of his bones would be broken upon his death. The prophet said that even his hands and his feet would be pierced. And they said that hundreds of years before they ever invented crucifixion. On and on and on, prophecies about this Jesus, this Messiah, this person that would come and be the Savior of the world. The odds of just one person fulfilling all of those prophecies is so astronomical, it's just ridiculous. But Jesus exactly fulfilled all of these predictive prophecies in advance with perfection. There's this one big prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, which actually gives us a timeline that predicts when the Messiah is supposed to come, and it has to be during this particular window. There's going to be an atonement made, and then there's going to be a divine visitation to the temple, and all of that has to happen before the temple is destroyed, which it was destroyed in A.D. 70. Only Jesus fits that criteria. And so what that means is either Jesus was indeed the Jewish Messiah, or there's never going to be one. That tells us two things, something about the Bible and then something about Jesus, right? If the Bible's just a book written by men, then it would not contain so many fulfilled prophecies. But yet on many occasions, we see the Bible predicts the future, decades, sometimes hundreds of years in advance. Jesus of Nazareth fits the prophetic profile perfectly. He's the one they were waiting for. This is what Christmas is all about. This is why we sing Like the hymn writer said, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to all the earth. Christmas is about fulfilled prophecy. Now, isn't it interesting to you that in nearly every modern fantasy book or movie, whether it's Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or the Chronicles of Narnia or the Wheel of Time or Aragon, there's always some prophecy about the one who's going to come and this one is going to set everything straight when he does arrive. Can I let you in on a little secret? That's copyright infringement (laughs) on the original prophesied birth story, Christmas. God promised his people, his children, that he would send them a Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, and he would be born of a woman and crush the head of the serpent. Do you realize what that means to us? That means if God kept his promises to his people back then, he's going to keep his promises to you. God can be trusted. Don't count them out. Don't sell them short. So those are some of the Old Testament verses, but now let's take a look at some of the New Testament evidence for Christianity. The early follower of Jesus that records the most about Christmas is Luke, 
the physician and gospel writer that bears his name. Take a look at the very beginning of Luke chapter 1 to see how he begins this magnificent biography. Luke says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that's who he's writing for, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, I share that little section of Scripture with you because a lot of times what you hear is that the gospel writers were really writing legendary material. The problem with that is if you look at these verses on the screen, This is not written like any other ancient legend that exists. Notice the way that Luke writes here. He's writing more like an investigative journalist, isn't he? He's saying, I I went to the eyewitnesses, I did interviews and stuff, I talked to them and I wrote everything down. I did a lot of research. Friends, if what he's writing here is not true, then what you have to say is this is an account that would fit into a genre that we call realistic prose fiction. The problem with that theory is that that genre did not exist at that time. That genre was not even invented till like 400 years ago. So C.S. Lewis, who was a skeptic and also a literary scholar, makes this point really well. He says, quote, I have been reading poems, romances, lit- vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know none of them are like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown writer without known predecessor or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. Lewis is a little condescending there, but you get this point. At this point, I want to answer an objection that a lot of people raise today, and it's about Jesus and the mystery religions. You might have heard this idea that the Christmas story is like a copycat of several other pagan myths that existed out there from Greco-Roman culture, like the myth of Mithra or Attis. I was watching a podcast recently with Bill Maher, and he was talking about this with Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, I guess, has a podcast, and he, was, he had Bill Maher on there. And Bill Maher was talking about this, saying that Christianity is just like a copycat of the ancient pa- pagan myths that are out there. And I hear this a lot. People do this basically to attack the uniqueness of the Christian message. And the sad part about this is I'm sitting here watching this on YouTube. There's like a million views on this thing. People just take Bill Maher's word for it, and they say, oh, yeah, that sounds right. You know, he, he, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. They don't ever actually investigate the claim. But when you do, you find out that Bill Maher is probably not the most trusted source for theological information. Right? New Testament scholar Raymond Brown is really helpful here. He says, first of all, it's highly unlikely that first century Jews would want to imitate what they openly considered to be Greco-Roman mythology, number one. And number two, have you ever read these stories? Like, have you ever read the myth of Horus? I have. Number one, it does not have a virgin birth. Horus's mother, Isis, lays with the dead god Osiris to procreate with him, and then he actually rips out of his mother's womb And then he dies, not a sacrificial death, by the way. He dies from a sting of a scorpion, and he doesn't rise from the grave. Instead, he leads people in the underworld to go meet Osiris, the god of the dead. That is not a parallel with the Christmas story. (laughs) Or the other one is Mithra. Jesus is like Mithra. If you read that story, you realize Mithra wasn't born of a virgin either. He emerged out of a rock and left a big hole in the mountain where he came from. Or then there's Attis, the grandson of Zeus, 
It turns out the myth says that Zeus dropped some of his seed on a mountain, and then a tree grew there, and then Addis' mother ate the fruit from the tree that supposedly grew there, and that resulted in her becoming pregnant, eating this fruit. And is he raised from the dead? Well, one story says after he was killed, his hair continued to grow, and his little finger continued to move for years and years and years. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But people coming out of rocks and people growing, uh, trees growing from blood that gets dropped on a ground, that's not a real parallel to the Christmas story or the Christian faith on any significant level. Uh, if you're interested in an academic critique of this idea, you, you have to pick up a book from Sweden called The Riddle of the Resurrection, Dying and Rising Gods by Menninger, who does a good job just debunking this whole idea. But Christians oftentimes will fall for this, and it, it causes their faith to be shaken, and it, it's unfortunate. What they're trying to do is discredit the uniqueness of Christianity, but there's nothing out there that is anything like the beautiful Christmas story. There is no comparison to what we have in the New Testament Gospels. That is just a fact. You're entitled to your own opinions and feelings. You are not entitled to your own facts. What's interesting to me is, again, going back to Luke, the writer, is he's really interested in facts. If you read his, his book, Luke or Acts, he gives so much attention to these little details to the historical time period, the background of the first century, and you go back and you check for archaeological confirmation, and you find all this stuff really checks out. Take a look at what he says in chapter 3. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." Just notice the guy in verse 1, Lysanias. Luke says he was a tetrarch, a leader of Abilene. Archaeologists used to read this, and they used to mock this. And they used to say, see, 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 Luke, Luke's sloppy. Luke's inaccurate. Why? Because everybody knows Lysanias was not a tetrarch. He was a king, and he died by execution like 63 years before this. But then, not that long ago, 15 miles north of Damascus in an area of the first century known as Abilene, they find an inscription there saying that Lysanias was in fact the tetrarch of Abilene in the year 27 AD. Just like Luke said he was, turns out there was two guys named Lysanias or Lysinii, I don't know. So Australian archaeologist Clifford Wilson found that, and he said, quote, those who know the facts now recognize that the New Testament must be accepted as a remarkably accurate source book. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. One of the world's premier scholars on Luke is Dr. Craig Keener. He wrote this commentary on Luke's writings. It's like 7,000 pages long. It's like four of like. Craig, have mercy on us, bro. 7,000 pages. I, I, it's unbelievable. And in that commentary, he gives all of these examples from Luke, all these details, seemingly insignificant details that Luke writes about in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, which he also wrote, that can be corroborated as being accurate, like city officials, people, places. Luke and the other Gospel writers are very careful historians, and they have all the earmarks of authenticity that we look for in ancient works. Earmarks like eyewitness testimony, multiple attestation, meaning you see this in multiple places, the criteria of embarrassment, meaning it does not paint its main characters as heroic. Actually, it's just the opposite if you read the Gospels. They all write these things down as authentic history. Luke and the other Gospel writers 
had no motivation to write these things down as a fabrication. They had every reason, I would argue, to not write this stuff down because the penalty for writing this stuff down and spreading this message in the first century culture was death. The only motivation they would have is if this was true and they wanted to spread the word. And this is exactly what we find. It's true. It's not just true. It's truer than true. It is the standard by which all other truth claims are measured. It's true. So my encouragement is just read the Gospel of Luke for yourself there, which leads us to movement three, the global evidence for Jesus, evidence of his impact on the world. The first two points are compelling to me, but it's actually this third point, the lives transformed by Jesus, that I find to be the most compelling. In other words, if you look at the impact of this man, Jesus, you'll discover everywhere you turn in our broken world, From the first century to the 21st century, in the fight for human rights, in the elevation of women, in the founding of universities, in the founding of hospitals, you will find most often a passionate Christ follower at the bottom of that organization inspired by the teachings of Jesus. Let me just give you one example. Long after Mary and Joseph had passed away, there was another woman named Mary Mose. Mary Mose lived in the 1800s in Minnesota. In 1883, an F5 tornado hit Rochester, Minnesota. It obliterated the city, injured thousands of people, demolished homes, 37 people died. Now, sometimes the reason people reject the story of Christmas is because of this kind of suffering. A natural disaster or a physical ailment hits you or your family, and you can't make sense of this. Perhaps that's you today. Maybe you feel like some kind of tornado has hit your life. A tornado of sickness, a tornado of suffering, a tornado of divorce, a tornado of cancer, or even the death of a loved one. And you're thinking, how could, how could this happen? How could a loving God allow this to happen? Well, in the middle of this humanitarian disaster, God planted a woman named Mary Mose. At that time, there was no hospital in Rochester. In fact, back then, doctors only treated rich people the upper class who were rich enough to afford them. So if you were poor, if you were an orphan, or if you were a widow, poor families often went without medical care. Well, Mary thought this was very unfair. Mary felt like Jesus' call to care for the least of these and to love your neighbor was for everyone. She took very seriously the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 11, where he describes his core mission as the blind receiving sight, the lame walking, Those who have leprosy being cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Those words pierced Mary's heart. This idea that God is in the business of healing broken lives, caring for the sick, caring for the poor. And so what she did is she started caring for the sick, and she started nursing them back to health. And then she became friends with a local doctor, and she asked if he would be willing to help her. Mary put her words into action. She had this God-sized vision. She said, what, listen, what if we could create a place? What if we could create a place where poor people could come and they could receive care here for free? And so she convinces this young doctor to help her. And she says, I can gather a few more of my nurse friends. Can you gather a few more of your doctor friends? And we can create like this little hospital in Rochester, Minnesota. So he agrees. And he started caring and she started caring. And they started caring for the sick and the diseased in Rochester, Minnesota. And it became this regional hub for medical care. You may know the name of that young doctor. His name was William Mayo. What I just told you was the story of the founding of the Mayo Clinic. 
It's the number one hospital in America today. My point is the catalyst for all of this was a serious Christ follower named Mary. In fact, if you go to the Mayo Clinic today, what you're going to find right in the middle of their campus is a hospital named after Mary. Just an ordinary person who gave her life fully to Jesus Christ. And her effort has done extraordinary good for humanity. Literally millions of lives have been saved through the life-saving techniques that have come out of the Mayo Clinic. Here's my point, friends. This is what our God does. Our God takes ordinary people who devote their lives to Jesus Christ, and he empowers them to do extraordinary good in this world. Ordinary people, people like you and like me, empowered by the spirit of the living God to do extraordinary good in this world. These things Jesus said that you've seen me do, you will do these things, and even greater things than these you will do. This is the legacy of Jesus. This is the legacy of his followers. This story is not unique whatsoever. I'll give you another one. Johns Hopkins University and Hospital. You know who that is? You know who John Hopkins is? He was a Christian. He was a Quaker who left his family fortune behind to create a hospital for slaves and to educate those who couldn't afford to pay for school. You know what the motto of Johns Hopkins is? Take a look at that seal on the screen where it says in Latin the words veritas vas liberabit. Anybody know Latin in here? You know what that means? The truth will set you free. Friends, the most important global research hospital in the world was founded on the words of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of John and was founded by a devout Christian who simply wanted to follow Christ with his life. Wow. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever noticed that in any city, the best hospitals tend to have Christian names? Have you ever just noticed that well, there's St. Jude's and St. Luke's and Mercy Emmanuel and New York Presbyterian? Have you ever noticed that? Why is that? Take a look at this chart. I got this from that book, Jesus Skeptic. Look, look at this. Nine out of the top ten hospitals were started by Christ followers. Why do so many hospitals have Christian names? How come there's not a hospital named after Karl Marx? The answer is because we can trace modern medicine back to the founders who were Christians, all motivated by Jesus' heart, Jesus' call to care for the least of these. Let's be honest. No matter how you feel about Jesus, if you're having a heart attack or your mom needs a cancer surgery, you want to choose one of these top 10 hospitals. Although they have Christian names, they're happy to care for anyone, atheists, Muslims, Hindus, and people with No faith whatsoever. I emphasize this because today I keep hearing this same old repeated false claim. And the claim is that Christianity is bad for society. It hinders human progress. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's the opposite of what you've been told. It's the opposite of what you've been told. The earliest Christians began right away Right away, taking the words of Jesus very, very seriously, caring for the hurting in their societies, the lepers, the diseased, the prostitutes, those who were weak, those who were dying. In the first century culture, they would often have unwanted babies that were left out for exposure. It was a terrible, terrible practice. It was the early Christians who would go find those little babies, care for them, nurse them back to health, and adopt them into their own families. This is the legacy of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I know that's a lot of information today. This is kind of like a college class or something. So everybody just take a breath for a second and take a look at this picture of a sea otter. Yes, this is called a brain break. Have you ever seen a sea otter? They're super cute little cuddly creatures who play in the ocean. Sea, sea otters are nature's cutest animal, I think. Sometimes you'll see otters floating with their babies on their belly, holding hands or napping in the California sun. So I was talking to my good friend, Tim Lucas, from Liquid Church, and he says, you know, Christians in a culture are like sea otters. I'm like, what the heck are you talking about, sea otters? Marine biologists have discovered that sea otters are a keystone species. All other forms of life in the ocean depend on them. When sea otters are present in an ecosystem, all other ocean life thrives, from plankton up to the great white sharks and whales. They, they flourish. But if you, on the other hand, take sea otters out of an ecosystem, life deteriorates from all species. Check this out. In California, sea otters were hunted to near extinction back in the 1920s. And Monterey Bay became lifeless and stagnant. Why? Biologists discovered that thousands of ocean creatures would come to Monterey Bay to feed on underwater forests of sea kelp. Have you ever seen these things? Like sea kelp, like 125 feet tall. It's just amazing, right? The problem is that there was this little evil sea urchin who infected the kelp and sought to destroy it, leaving no food for the animals at the bottom of the food chain, which of course worked its way up and destroyed this entire ecosystem. But Guess who loves to eat little evil sea urchins? <laughs> sea otters. This is like their midnight snack, afternoon snack, morning snack, breakfast, second breakfast. They love to eat little sea urchins. And so the marine biologists, the zoologists in the 70s, they got this idea. They introduced sea otters back into the Monterey Bay. And guess what? The ecosystems roared back to life. Today, it's thriving with great white sharks and orca whales swimming thousands of miles to feast on this rich food supply, the kelp that exists in Monterey Bay. That's the power of a keystone species. It elevates the life of everything around it. Friends, here's the point I'm trying to make to you this morning. If you will take the time to investigate the history, the impact of Christianity, what you will discover is that Christians are a keystone species for human flourishing. Wherever Christians have taken root, human flourishing follows. They dramatically improve society for all people, regardless of religious belief. Take a look at this mosaic. This collection is from that book, Jesus Skeptic. At the forefront of every major social movement, you will find a Christian. Founding hospitals, we talked about Mary Mose, Johns Hopkins, and many more. Ending slavery. Martin Luther King Jr., Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, William Wilberforce, all passionate Christians who fought for racial justice and abolished open slavery. Pioneering medicine, Edwin Jenner, the father of modern-day vaccines, a committed Christian. Starting universities, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, were all founded by Christians for the express, express purpose of training pastors. If you look at their logo, oftentimes there's scripture verses embossed in their logo. Pioneering the scientific revolution, Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, Johannes Kepler, they were all passionate Christ followers, and their scientific breakthroughs dovetailed with the Protestant Reformation, elevating education and literacy for all. Do you know like 300 years ago, very few people could read? But it was the Christians, after the Protestant Reformation, that began to advocate for something called public education and literacy. Why? Because they wanted their kids to read the Bible. 
Here's the point. If you look at the historical evidence, Christ followers have been at the forefront of social progress, leading the way to make this world a better place. Just think about our missionary interview today with faith. This is what Jesus is doing through his people for 2,000 years. Now, can I ask you a question? How did all this happen? What is your explanation? How did a penniless preacher from Nazareth create this global movement of mercy and compassion and powerful impact for the entire globe? What explanation do you have? Take a look at this map. How did we go from a dozen scared people in an attic to over two billion followers today? The only explanation that makes any sense to me is that Jesus actually existed and he actually was and is exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Did Jesus exist? The answer is yes. Which means Christianity is not only believable, it means Christianity brings good news for all. It means that God can take a tornado and turn it around as a catalyst for transformation. Friends, I don't know what tornado has hit your life, but maybe you're facing one of those tornadoes. Maybe you're facing the tornado of cancer or business failure or divorce or sickness or injustice. There are devastating tornadoes in this world that impact us all, aren't there? Friends, listen. At the heart of the Christmas story is the reality that the God of heaven stepped down into human history, into the mess of this world, into the tornado-like fallout of human sin. And our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, decided to do something about it, to give his life and all of his love as a sacrifice for us. That's the greatest gift that this world has ever been given. That's the message of Christmas. What's unbelievable is that me knowing my heart and my sin that God could have mercy and love and grace for even such a one as me. That's what's unbelievable. But yet the Bible says that's exactly what happened on Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And not only that, but the message of Christmas declares that Jesus is just the prototype Jesus inspires his followers. Once they place their faith in him, he inspires his followers to be his hands and to be his feet and to step into the messes of this world and offer hope and offer peace. And he tells us and commands us and he invites us to follow him and to go and to do likewise. I'm telling you, friends, God can take a tornado that killed 37 people and God can use that to save hundreds of thousands of lives. If there's just one person who would be willing to take the words of Jesus to heart and follow him, like Mary Mose or John Hopkins. We've talked about the impact of Jesus on this world. What's been the impact of Jesus on your life? If you will come to him by faith and faith alone and ask him for forgiveness, the scripture promises that he will accept you with open arms and offer you The peace of God, peace between God and you because of his sacrifice on the cross. And then he will take you, an ordinary person, and he will make a plan to do extraordinary things 
through you. That's the message of Christmas. You're now a keystone species. As we wrap up today, let me invite the worship team to come forward for one more song. As we carry out this series, my encouragement is that we're going to continue to look at more and more evidence for Jesus in the coming weeks. Keep an open mind. Do an exploration for yourself. Keep coming back and keep thinking, my friend. We're just getting started. My encouragement is to pick up a copy of that book by Rebecca McLaughlin on Amazon. It's $3.99. I think this will give you a lot of great answers for your questions. And pray that God would use you to be a catalyst of his love to share this good news of Christmas with those around you. I want to close today with an anonymous poem. My father-in-law, Adam Parati, shared this with me about 20 years ago, and I've never forgotten it. Perhaps you've heard it before, but it's worth repeating. It's called One Solitary Life. Here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in an obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside of a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place that he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies, and he went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long, wide centuries have come and gone. And today, at the time of this writing, today, he is the centerpiece of the human race and a leader of the column of progress. Then the writer says, I'm far within the mark when I say this. Out of all the armies that ever marched, and all the navies that were ever built, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, they have not affected life of man on this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for that one life that you sent as your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you took on humanity and died in agony so that you might make a way for us to have peace with you. Help us as your followers to testify to your coming and your love, which motivated you to come for us. Give us now that love and boldness and, and gentleness and grace. And, and Lord, help us to reach out in your name. Lord, we love you and we adore you and we worship you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.